You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. It's great to see you today. I'll add my welcome uh, to Todd's welcome and to Brent's welcome and uh, say that if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here today. We don't believe that you're here by accident in any way. And so I trust that you'll intersect with just exactly what God has for you today here at Bethel Bible Church. If you um, have your Bibles, go to Micah chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. We've started a series in this uh, book of Micah. Micah's in the Old Testament. If you find Jonah, it's the book right after Jonah there at the end of the of Old Testament. But Micah is um, writing, he's a prophet, um, around 750 B.C. It's at the reign of three uh, kings, uh, the King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. These are kings that are in the southern kingdom. Their capital is Jerusalem. Israel at this time is a divided nation, and the northern kingdoms known as Israel, the southern kingdoms known as Judah. Micah is from Judah, and he's writing to the leaders in Jerusalem in his capital. He's writing about two things. He's writing about the impending doom of the north. Uh, the northern kingdom has been led by a succession of 20 wicked kings, and God is going to allow, he is, he is providentially moving a nation called Assyria to come in, they are going to wipe the northern kingdom out. The, their capital was Samaria. They're going to come in. They're going to wipe Samaria out. They're going to take God's people in the north captive, deport them to Assyria. That'll happen in 722 B.C., and it is on the horizon, and everybody knows it. Micah's writing to say, hey, this is what's going to happen to the north, and he writes to the leaders in Jerusalem in the south and says, hey, you're not immune from this. The leaders in the south have said, they've been telling their people, hey, look, we're, we're going to be just fine because we're God's people. I mean, when we're God's place, this is Jerusalem, this is the capital, this is the city of David. Look, I know there's some, there's some things going on that probably shouldn't be going on, but at the end of the day, we're God's people. We're not as wicked as those nations out there that when God comes, he's going to judge them. And Micah comes in, and he's writing to those leaders. He says, look, your security, your security isn't who you are. Your security has been in, in saying that you are um, God's people. This is God's nation. And Micah comes and says, I'm here to tell you, God has a judgment that is coming for this people. And he's going to do it in the face of um, a lot of opposition, we'll, we'll see this morning. So as we begin, I want to ask you this question. It'll set us up for the morning. But where does your security lie? Your, your security, where, where, where you actually look for security or, or you, you look to for comfort. I mean, so when you're a child, um, you know, one of the places, if, if you're a child, you're scared or you're hurt, you, you know, you go to your mother for security, or at least you do in our home. Um, that's, that's where you would go. Uh, because that's where security is to be found. You know, as teenagers, teenagers often find security. They begin to look to, they begin to gravitate towards um, friendships as their security. And, and we know, I mean, listen, if you've 
If you're older than that, you've lived through it. What a fragile security that can be. You know, as adults, um, we, we are very similar. Where do we look to for security? Is it our jobs, our retirement accounts, or our physical appearance, uh, relationships of the nation that we live in? The truth is we look for security in many, many places, those places that we, that we go to that we feel um, insecure if they're threatened in our lives. You know, as believers, we know the right answer. If, if someone were to say, okay, Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, what, where is your security? We, we know the right answer that our security is to be found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I mean, we know, we know the right answer. But it's really hard to live that out on a day-to-day basis. I mean, we continue to look to other places for our security, even though we know. When I was growing up, maybe you had this um, at my grandfather's uh, table. Um, we would uh, have Sunday lunch over there, things like that. But he had this book. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a promise box, or, or maybe you had one. It was called The Bread of Life, and you pulled out a little uh, cardboard uh, you know, it's a little, and it just had a verse on it. And, and so before we ate the food on the table, we, the idea was we were going we to eat the food of these promises of God's Word. And so you, you pull it out, and it, you, know, you go around, everybody would read their, their promise that was on this little cardboard table. And that was really great, except the thing is, I think we treat Christianity like that. So the, so the Bible says the book of promises, places underlined, some things memorized, and it's, it's, our, it's our promise box, but yet we don't we don't know how to live that out on a day-to-day basis. We'd say, look, I, I know these are, are promises, yet when I'm in the moment, when I'm on a Monday afternoon or a, or a Wednesday morning or whatever, we so easily gravitate to all the other things that we seek security in. I don't know for certain why we do that. Uh, I have some ideas. C.S. Lewis had an idea about it. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I've, I've read it before, um, but i I don't mind reading it again, and to announce that if you haven't read C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's not too late to repent of that. Um, you can read it. I mean, you can get it real cheap, like on Amazon or pick it up in a bookstore. Um, and if you feel weird about reading it as an adult, find a kid and read it to them. That, that would, they would benefit greatly. But the, the Chronicles of Narnia, there's the children, Peter, Edmund, Lucy, Susan, sweet, sweet little Susan, and they discover, you know, this sort of mystical... Uh, distant land, and, and they got to it through a, through a wardrobe in this house. And so when they come into this land, the land's called Narnia, they discover um, that they, they meet a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are the ones that educate them about everything, and they tell them about a prophecy to come. So the land has been under a curse of an evil queen, and the way they talk about it is it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. And Mr. Ve- Beaver tells them about um, the, the one that is to come, the, the Aslan that is to come, and he will make things right. He will defeat the queen. He will, he will, he will bring spring um, time again. And, uh, um, and the Aslan's on the move, and, and that it's coming, and the children, they can't believe it. So soon, Susan, little Susan, she finally asks about Aslan. And, she, and, and Mr. Beaver says, well, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I, thought he, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I, 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, I think we, and I think Lewis has it right, we look for security in a lot of things because we find it hard to trust Jesus. When hard times come or, or times we don't understand or, or, or things that, you know, in all truth, we might not wish on our, on our worst enemies. They're, they're, they're scary. They're, they're painful in those moments. It doesn't feel like Jesus is really safe. I mean, if we believe, I mean, everything's kind of come through his hand. That Nothing comes into our life that, that hasn't come through the sovereign hand of God. And yet, man, I feel totally hung out there. I feel totally insecure. And so there are these moments that, man, that following Jesus somehow doesn't feel safe. And so we cling to something for security or, or, for, or for comfort. He, he's not acting like the, like the tamed lion that we wished he was. See, the reality is Jesus will allow things to come into your life. He may ordain things to come into your life. He'll lead you into to moments that are, that are dark moments. Things that, that don't feel safe. But it's in those moments that the Bible continues to call to us to, to trust him, to follow him, to find our security in Jesus, remembering that he is always good. What we're going to see this morning is Micah is preaching to his people. There are people that have, have turned um, their hope for security, their hope for the future, to other things. The, the first part of this, we're going to see that there are some people that have, that have looked to um, prosperity and wealth as security. The next bit, we'll see that they've begun to turn to their preachers, their prophets, to the words they speak for security. And then finally, Micah will, will end all of that up. He's going to wrap all of it up and talk to a third group. But I'm going to begin Micah chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Here's, here's how it goes. It says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We're utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by in the assembly of the Lord. Micah announces a, a woe on those who plan and perform wickedness. It, it's, like a, um, it's like a funeral song is essentially what he's laying out. He says, they devise wickedness and they work evil. And then he says, look, they, in your own bed. And the idea is that you've been doing this one thing day and night. This is your interest. You meditate solely on this one thing, how to harm the poor and treat them violently. It sounds like here that Micah's writing to the enemies that are beyond the borders. 
It sounds like he might be writing to the Assyrians or the, or the emerging Babylonians or maybe to the evil and wicked Egyptians in the south that he must be writing to the enemies. They, they oppress the poor. They, they violently go against them. Here's the thing. Micah's writing to the people in his capital city. He's writing to the rulers. He's writing to the religious leaders. He's writing to the preachers of his day. What's the wickedness or the evil? It it says in verse 2, it says they were coveting fields. They were seizing them. They were taking the houses away. They they were oppressing men. They were putting the squeeze on them, if you will, and threatening inheritance. And Micah's language is that they were coming in and taking people's land, taking people's homes, taking people's inheritances by force. And the end of verse 1 tells us why they did it. Why did they do it? Because they could. They had the power to. They had the means to do so, and so they did. In fact, verses 8 and 9, in just a little bit, we'll look. It, it, didn't, it wasn't just the men that they put the squeeze on. What they did is they found widows and, and her children, and they'd come in and they'd evict the widow out of her home, off her land, and they would seize it. And they would say things like, you know, well, Listen, we, we know we can work this land better than you can. We, we have better plans for this than you could ever have for it. How serious was it? One uh, writer, uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke, in his commentary, he says, In that agrarian economy, a person's life depended on his fields. And for that reason, his inheritance was carefully safeguarded by the law, the Mosaic law. It was a sacred trust not just another piece of real estate. If a person lost his fields, at best he might become a day laborer. At worst, he might become a slave. In either case, he lost his independence, his freedom before God, and became a dependent of the land barons. You know, in verse 2, when Micah says to covet, um, he's speaking about the Tenth Commandment. Tenth Commandment, you, you shall not covet covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You, you can't. So, so to set your heart upon that which is your neighbor's, that which isn't yours, to set your heart upon it, to begin dreaming and scheming and devising your plan of how you're going to get it, the Bible says that is to covet. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this about covetousness. He, he talks about it, put it to death. It's part of who we are. It's, it's the earthly part in us. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Forbids idolatry. The last commandment, Do not covet. Do not be an idolater. This was essentially, in many respects, the same thing. In fact, Paul in Romans 7 says that he was struggling, struggling with being covetous. Not only that, in Leviticus chapter 25, 23, um, what you see there is as as the law uh, sets out who owns what land, here's what it says. You, You can't sell your land. Not in, not in perpetuity anyway, because the land is not yours, it's mine, God says. All this land is mine. 
This is the promised land. I gave it to you. I moved you in here. I allotted each family a portion of this land. It's, it's my land. They're using it. You can't sell your land like it was yours. You can't exchange the deed. Now, he did make provision. So listen, if you fall upon hard times or a crisis comes into your life or, or you, 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 poverty overtakes your family for a season, you can go to your neighbor and say, look, I don't have any money. We can't feed our family. Our, my husband died. We can't work our fields. And so you could sell a portion of that property to your neighbor. Your neighbor would work it. And then the idea is, is that when you got back on your feet or a kinsman redeemer would come along, you would buy that back out of the, the, um, the holding and it would be your land. And if you couldn't, say you never recovered from that poverty or that crisis, never got back on your feet. Every 50th year was called the year of Jubilee when all the debts were canceled and that deed went back to you and your family. It's the way God had designed it. There was provision for the poor, but in Micah's day, the poor had become the prey of the powerful and the wealthy. And a famous story in Micah's day would have been a story that took place back in 1 Kings chapter 21. Several generations before Micah, before the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, but there was a king in the north whose capital was Samaria. And the king was a guy named Ahab. And Ahab had a very famous wife named Jezebel. And Ahab, one day, he sees a guy named Naboth. He has a vineyard. And Ahab, the king, looks at Naboth's vineyard and says, man, that's a really nice vineyard. I want that. Like, I want all of Naboth's land. So he goes to Naboth and he says, hey, Naboth, give me a price. I mean, what's it going to take? I want your land. Naboth says, well, I'm flattered, but I, I can't sell you the land. I mean, this was allotted by God to my family. It belongs to my family. It's, it's, our, it's our ancestry. It's our inheritance. I, I don't have the power with which to just give you or sell you that which is God's. Well, Ahab, like a spoiled child, this is the king. He goes back to his castle, in uh, his palace in Samaria. He crawls on his bed, turns his back, and begins to, to mope and to whine like a baby. And so his wife Jezebel comes in and says, what's wrong? He says, I want Nahab's field. He won't give it to me. So Jezebel says, hey, don't worry about it. Hubs, I'll take care of it. And so she concocts a scheme. She has Naboth brought before a council um, on false charges. Naboth is convicted on the false charges of being an idolater. They take him from that council out into the streets. They stone him dead. Jezebel comes back and says, Hey, Ahab, the land's free. It's yours for the taking. It's a, it's a very wicked scene. In fact, the next scene is the, the king from the south, a guy named Jehoshaphat from Jerusalem. He comes up. He's going to meet with Ahab. They're going to end up, they're talking about going to war together, partnering to go to war together. And uh, Jehoshaphat, the, the guy from the south, says, hey, listen, before we do this, Ahab, we, we ought to call some counselors in here, some prophets, just to see what the Lord has to say. And they, Ahab says, okay, no problem. So he brings in his 200 counselors, his 200 prophets, and they all say, hey, green light. God says this is a green light. Jehoshaphat says, man, something seems off about this. So he looks at Ahab and he says, hey, do you, do you by any chance have any more prophets? And Ahab says, yeah, I have one. His name's Micah, a different Micah. I have one. His name's Micah, but I hate him. So why do you hate him? 
Because all he does is talk about how evil I am and the sin I have and that God's going to judge me. <laughs> really? See, that was famous. That's what the people in the south in Micah's day, this Micah's day, they said, well, that's how the people in the north are. And Micah's turning around and says, no, that's how you are. This is you. The treachery that Ahab, it does not compare to what you're doing. See, chapter 1, worship had been completely distorted. Chapter 2, people are being despised. And in verse 3, it says that God is devising a plan. Where, where in chapter 1, the wicked, they were devising a plan. God here is devising a plan. He's going to repay the wicked in kind. It's not karma. It's divine punishment. It's God getting involved. And Micah says, this is coming upon you. And the, and the disaster that's coming by God's hand, in verse 3, it, it, it's unavoidable. You won't be able to escape it. It's, it'll be uh, the last part of verse 3. It's humiliating. It'll be the opposite of the arrogance that you walk around in today. It'll be a taunt song. It'll be a song like a sarcastic song. They'll these people are going to end up being ridiculed. They're going to moan bitterly, it says. Verse 4, it's an appropriate uh, disaster coming upon them. In verse 4, we also find out that it's public. It won't be secret. It'll be exposed. The song that's going to be sung about them is going to be sung. About, it's like a, like a Taylor Swift song, you know, when she writes about some sorry guy she broke up with and puts it on the radio. The taunt song. In fact, the way that it's written, the song that was written and sung by those that had been ruined, like an old spiritual, it will now be sung to mock those who had ruined them. And in verse 5, it's going to be frightening, sobering. What Micah's saying is that they have no stake in the future. They have no place in the future. They're going to be cut off. See, idolatry or covetousness is at the heart here. It's a personal desire for more that trumps the compassion for others, particularly those who are struggling. And Micah's saying, listen, in your pursuit, I mean, so you're devising plans to prey upon the vulnerable. You're going to strong arm men. You're going to evict widows. You're going to steal the inheritance of the fatherless sons. And Micah says, listen, you go and get all that you can now because the day's coming when you will have nothing. Get it now. You're going to have nothing. When the time comes, Micah's riled up about this. And then in verse 6, after he aims at those that have been pillaging the vulnerable, he's going to take aim at his peers, at the prophets, the preachers of the day. Look at verse 6. Do not preach. 
thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. What Mike is doing is he's saying, listen, this is what I hear from preachers all day long. This is what I hear from prophets all day long, from my peers. They say to me, hey, Micah, you can't say stuff like that. You can't preach that way. You're making people uncomfortable, Micah. Nobody wants to hear about judgment. Nobody wants to hear about sin. You, you are saying, listen, God's patience is going to run out and his judgment's coming. And look, Micah, that's not in vogue. It's disgraceful to say that we're God's people. This is God's nation. Look, look around. Listen, there might be some things wrong here. But man, we're, God's, we're the apple of God's eye. Quit saying that we're doing anything wrong. If you want to preach, preach judgment against the nations. Not here. Verse 7, should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. See, the prophets, they were preaching against Micah's preaching. They'd taken the role of motivational speakers, paid encouragers. They, they viewed their role as to protect the nation from any negativity. I mean, the top 40 song of the preachers that day would have been, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, all the days of my life, all the days of my life. See, their confidence was in their status as a nation. They were God's special people, and Micah's message was offensive. People don't like to talk about a God of judgment. People don't like to talk about sin, God's love, and and right, I mean, love wins. That, that's the title. That's what the book says. So the good news is that there's no bad news. But there was no appetite for a preacher like Micah. No, no appetite for the truth. Essentially, verse 8, you know, with, with friends like you, who needs enemies? No, in fact, you are an enemy. In fact, you're worse than an enemy because you, you were trusted as a friend. They're pillaging those who were trusting. The result is that after they finished what he's saying is, it, it looks like this. After, after, they, after they've pillaged and they've taken and they've robbed and evicted, that the people are left like people who come back from a war they lost. That's the situation they're in. It may be that the picture behind verse 9 is that of widows and children. I think it is. They're being preyed upon. The inheritance and the future of the fatherless are being stripped from them. In verse 10, here's the consequences. He says, get up and get off is, is essentially what God said. Get up, get off the land. 
And I think the way that the word's used here, I think the way that he's doing it is God is using their own words against them. Where they would show up to the widow's place and say, okay, get up and get off the land. It's mine now. And God comes back and uses that same language to them. Verse 11, one commentator translates it this way, if a windbag goes around and utters lies, I'll preach to you of wine and beer. He shall be the preacher for this people. It was the message of the popular preachers of the day. And what they were doing is they were claiming to have the power of the Spirit. But in the end, it wasn't the Spirit of God. They're simply windbags. They're just blowhards. It was a false gospel. It was a false message that they were giving. Look, don't worry about anything. We're God's people. This is Jerusalem, for crying out loud. The city of David. Micah's just angry. Micah's just crazy. Well, in an attempt to be true to the ethos of Micah's message to his people, so, so that not only do we see it, but that we would feel it in this message, that the message this morning would have that same ethos. What might Micah say to us? Listen, Micah was not popular. He was not saying what people wanted to hear, although it was true. What might he say today? Well, to do that, I want to read a little bit, an excerpt of a post uh, from Huffington Post. Posted about five days ago. And I'll read this. I I didn't write it. Let me just say this. As Micah was an equal opportunity offender... Um, that's my aim this morning too. There's a little bit to offend everyone in this. If it helps you, I didn't write it, but I am reading it. So here we go. Starts out this way. The prosperity gospel is fooling a lot of people. No, not that prosperity gospel, the other prosperity gospel. That one doesn't have an official name, but it's now more popular than ever. It's the one that worships America, the one that worships freedom, the one that worships rights. It's a gospel premised on the idea that Christians should have an easy existence, and it's a false gospel as ever has existed. You might call it the patriotic gospel, the American civic gospel, or maybe even the Duck Dynasty gospel. Whatever the name, it's way more American than Christian. And it's ultimately just another prosperity gospel that promises security through something other than Christ. This form of American Christianity is a frustrating faction of the faith. There are passionate but generic references to God, calls for fervent prayer and public pleas for morality. But the alleged number one devotion to God is usually tied to a number one devotion to the stars and stripes, as if one must always be tied to the other. It's a gospel that pays lip service to a God that's in control, 
but is heavy on emotions that say man is really the one who protects us. In other words, it's a gospel that downplays or ignores the complete sovereignty of God. And among its tenets are. Now, if you're not offended, here we go. It's a gospel that suggests living out and sharing your faith is dependent on having the freedom to do so. It's a gospel that looks to the government rather than the church or the home to do the heavy lifting on matters of faith. It's a gospel that suggests without conservative Supreme Court justices or without guns or without a strong military that life will be unbearable for Christians. It's a gospel that suggests one's greatest source of identity and value can be found in one's nationality. It's a gospel that laments the loss of prayer in schools rather than the lack of prayer at home. It's a gospel that dreads a future in which Christians are persecuted for sharing their faith but puts no real emphasis on sharing it now. Meditating. I'm, I'm not going to read all these. It's a gospel that says persecution's having to hear someone say happy holidays. It's a gospel that says eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich counts as living out your faith. Friends, it's simply a false gospel. Now he goes on. He says, don't, don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with loving your country, but we should keep that in check. Yes, we should want a strong country. We should be thankful for our rights. Part of the biblical role of government is to restrain evil, but none of those should become the source of our security, nor should they be what we value most. They shouldn't be the reasons we live as Christians. They shouldn't become our idols. Here's the thing. Christians are never guaranteed control. We're never guaranteed happiness. We're never guaranteed safety. We are owed nothing by this world. In fact, if we were to look at the New Testament, we are guaranteed hatred, real persecution, perhaps even death. The Christian life was never meant to be easy. It was never supposed to be popular, at least by the world's standards. If you're caught up in this, ask yourself, why are you so concerned with keeping an easy existence as a Christian? Is it the easy existence that holds your faith together? Have you made an idol of comfort, of freedom? Listen, these are hard things. Where is your security? Well, what are you counting on? They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't want to hear what Micah had to say in his day. So false preachers tell half-truths. They paint half-pictures. They call it the whole. They misrepresent God. They were doing nothing more than telling people what they wanted to hear. Well, in the first five verses, Micah takes aim at the leaders in Jerusalem, the, the political leaders, the spiritual leaders. In verses 6 through 11, Micah takes aim at his, at his peers, at the prophets, at the preachers, at the words they're saying, at the false gospel and false comfort 
they're dishing out. And so you might think, well, man, I wonder how Micah's going to end this deal. I mean, I wonder what the big grand conclusion, I wonder what the big hammer is that Micah's going to just drop on these people. You know, I mean, how, how does it go? You, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, you tell them what you told them. That's how you outline how to give a speech. So what's Micah going to do? Well, here's what's so surprising. What he does in verses 12 and 13, John Calvin couldn't even believe it. He said, I cannot even believe this is what he would have done. See, what Micah's going to do is he is going to turn and offer hope. Not a hope like the false prophets had been giving, but a true, rich, deep, sovereign, biblical hope. Look at what he says in verse 12. This is God speaking through Micah. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach, the, the breaker, goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So Micah ends the section with hope that, that even though there was judgment, even though there was going to be disaster that came, there was a promise of preservation. Disaster is not going to be the last word for God's people. He's called a shepherd. He's called the breaker, the king, the head. Who does Micah see here? Here is God's promise of preservation. Notice, I will, God says, I will. All of you, a united kingdom. Listen, false shepherds scatter sheep. They feed themselves, not the flock. Here's a true shepherd that is to come, one who is their king. He will free his people. He becomes the one who is the breaker. He goes before them. There's three verbs. They break through. They march through. They go out. It describes, it describes what, what it means to be led by the one who leads. And no human force, no human force, no satanic force can come against you as you follow that leader. And the way this is written, the way the language is working, it's not one who comes from the outside in. It's one who comes up from the inside and leads his people out, like a Moses, who was a Jew, who came from his own people, who led his people through the Exodus. That's the idea here. That as Micah sees, there is one there's, there's one coming. Listen, not a false hope, not a false peace, and certainly, listen, the way the language works, not one who is safe, but man, one who is good. The writer of Hebrews 
captures the picture well of this one that Micah was talking about. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist is bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing of your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God he has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Who's this breaker, this shepherd, this ruler? Well, he's none other than the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah. The one who comes not from the outside in, but came in from the inside. He, he came in. He became one of us. He, he took on flesh. He, he took on blood. He took on humanity. He came in as the breaker to, to step up, to, to lead, to rule, to lead us, to be our shepherd, to be our king. To take our place. To be led through the valleys of the shadow of death all the way to the cross where he would be nailed to a piece of wood and hung as a curse in front of his own people who would mock him. And then turn and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He would die your death and mine. He would lay in a grave for three days, and after three days, he would rise again. Having broken through sin, having broken through death, having come through victorious as the first fruits of the resurrection, which means that when you die physically in this life, you will follow him in resurrection to a glorified, everlasting life. 
You know, Micah's saying to his people, why in the world would you settle for the security and comforts that you can see around you? Why would you, why would you give up eternity following this king for a few trinkets and villas here on the earth? You want safety? You want comfort? Get all you can now. There'll be nothing for you in the future. Do you want no everlasting peace? Do you want no everlasting security? Do you want no life abundantly forever? I know you do. I know you do because it was created in you to want that more than anything. And Micah says there's one coming. You can't fix yourself, but he's one that's come to take all that is wrong with you, all your sin, all your rebellion, onto him. To die for you, to pay your price, to lead you into victory. The forgiveness of your sins, the love of the eternal God. This is the one. Where's your security? Michael would say. What are you counting on? What's your hope today? Is it in the only place that it can be found truly? The one who is our king, Jesus. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. To your prophet Micah that has been preserved for the centuries. And Father, what we confess is that this is the word of the Lord to Micah from Morasheth. It's your holy word in a time and in a place and to a people in the midst of a specific circumstance. And so, Father, it has meaning there in the 8th century B.C. And, Father, while your word came to a time and a place and a circumstance to a people through Micah of Morasheth, we also know that it is your word that is living and active and not time-bound but timeless. And so, Father, we read these words and they are as fresh for us today as they were the day they were spoken and written down. So, Father, I pray you'd do your work in us. I pray you would confront us with the places we go for security and comfort and the things we covet, the, the idols in our life. Father, would you expose those? That in the midst of our insecurities, would you remind us, draw us to your Son and Help us to know that's, that's how you reveal the idolatry in us is the insecurities that you grant us. And that so, Father, while we're so prone to be people who want safety and so prone to be people who want comfort and so prone to be people who wander, Father, we confess we don't want safe. We want good. 
We don't want now. We want forever. Father, we want to be drawn to your Son, who is our King. We want to know him as our shepherd. We trust in him as the breaker that goes before us. Our leader, our king, our savior, our redeemer. So, Father, we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your son, Jesus, who is high and lifted up and seated at the right hand of your eternal throne. Whom we long for his coming. And Father, by the power of your spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.